Hello, curiosity seekers and adventurous thinkers. Welcome to Applied Curiosity Lab Radio, the podcast for the relentlessly curious. This season, our host and Applied Curiosity Lab's chief curiosity seeker, Becky Saltzman, will be sharing the studio with ACL's chief experience producer and favorite sister, Jennifer Felberg. The lens is, and always will be, curiosity. Each week, fun and formal conversations center around one delectable curiosity bite, designed to give your brain the time and ideas to think about thinking, to flex your curiosity muscle, and maybe even revolutionize the way you think. I decided that I really needed to learn more about China and the United States and all of these political machinations because of this tariff situation with China, between China and the United States. I was curious about whether the United States was really evaluating the position that they have in this tariff war in an antiquated way, like was 10 years ago a chance to, quote, win the tariff war different than the chances now? And that led me into this whole exploration of China and AI, artificial intelligence. And I started nerding out, and I decided that that's really what I wanted to learn more about. So a friend of mine recommended the book AI Superpowers, China, Silicon Valley, and the New World Order. So I've been listening to it on Audible. I love Audible because I can fold the laundry and do all these things while I learn versus sitting and reading a book. And I learned a couple of really interesting things about AI that I had been curious about. One, I was wondering the difference between AI and machine learning or or neural networks, or is one a subcomponent of the other? And this is what I learned that is pretty cool, that the two ways of looking at AI. One is the if this, then that, which is maybe the older way of looking at AI. So for example, if there's a circle with two triangles on top of the circle, then it's a cat. Versus the neural network way of of looking at AI or the machine learning way of AI is feeding AI, feeding all this data. So this is a cat, this is a cat, this is a cat, this is a cat, this is a cat. And then having that machine learn what all of the attributes of a cat may be. And that's where I got to realize that this whole idea of data. So this starting on wondering about how do I learn more about this tariff war situation going on right now led me to understand why data or big data could be the petroleum of the future, like the most valuable resource of the future. So I was having this conversation about this and some other things with my friend Mampaji, who's from Uganda, and he was talking about how he was shocked since coming to the United States, how little people know not only about the African continent in general, but specifically about the really, really important things going on in Uganda and the fact that like Museveni or Museveni and the Supreme Court just upheld a lifetime term for this guy and what a bad guy he is. And all of these events were hundreds, if not thousands of people are getting killed. And not only did I know nothing about it, but I even went to look to see where I would go to find it. And it was really hard to find out about that stuff. And that led me to realize that it's really hard to find out about events on the African continent. And that led me to Al Jazeera. And now I have that app on my phone, so I can at least check it a couple times a week to see what's happening in the world. But all of that was just an exploration that started with what's happening right now that I wish I knew more about. So I turn that curiosity bite 
back to you, Jennifer. What's happening right now that you wish you knew more about? There are so many things happening right now. And I think that's part of the issue is that I just feel so overwhelmed with all this information coming at me. I think mostly what I would like to learn right now about what's happening right now is what's happening around the world. But then where do you focus? You were focusing on one thing and then that went to a different direction. And then Mpaji came up to you and said, oh, you don't, or not you, but most people don't know what's happening in Africa. I would venture to wonder if he knows what's happening in other parts of the world or if that's just what he's focused on because that's where he's from. But for me, I am trying to listen to a podcast. It's called Revolutions. And it's talking about revolutions from the beginning of time to now because I think history helps us understand what's happening right now. Not that history is going to repeat itself, but that it it it's helping what's what's happening right it now. It informs it informs the present and the future. Exactly. But then I still don't know what's happening around the world right now. And when people start talking about it, I don't want to be one of those stupid Americans that only focuses on US things or things that are just happening to me. And so I really want to be knowledgeable and I want to not be that stereotype, you know, that only speaks English. So I that's what I want to learn, what's going on in the world. Now, wish is different than should. Right. Should I know more about climate change? Now, I might think, yeah, I should really know more about climate change so that I could do something about it. But to the extent that I would stop eating meat, buy an electric car, stop traveling around the world using fuel and understand hydrocarbons in a way that I never have before, why should I? What difference realistically is that going to make? Maybe I can post something on Facebook admonishing people who do not do everything they can to avoid climate change, but then it would be disingenuous to post my vacations in Tahiti. <laughs> I mean, because that would be... Yeah. So that's should... But I don't know. How much is what you should know relate to what you wish you knew? I think it kind of goes hand in hand in some ways, because I wish I came across smarter and more knowledgeable. And I probably should have more knowledge and be aware of things that are happening. What if you could not share your knowledge outside of the, outside of the confines of your skull? I still think you should have that knowledge. It will help your decision making. I wish I knew more, but I just don't have the time. And I think that's the biggest problem for most people is you're trying to do your day to day things. And by the time you crash into bed and watch Chopped at the end of the day, that's, that's all there is. I do love Chopped. I love Chopped. How much of what you wish you knew more about relates to FOMO, fear of missing out? So you see someone post something on Facebook. Maybe it's a current event, a political event, uh, the Mueller report, abortion rights being whittled away or opportunities if you're pro-life to think about things differently. How much of what you wish you knew more about has an element of FOMO? I don't have that kind of pressure, I don't think. I could be wrong. But when I look at postings on social media, it usually is, boy, I don't know enough about that. It's not that I'm missing out. Well, maybe it is. 
it could be mentally missing out versus experiential. You might not yeah. say, oh, I wish I could participate in this Facebook thread. You might not care at all. Right. But do you ever feel like, wow, I'm mentally missing out on that? Yes. I like to spend most of my time, whether right or wrong, focusing on thinking about how to think versus thinking about what to think. Because that, that's what I do for that's a living. That's what you do. That's yeah. what I do for a living. By the same token, it doesn't mean that I shouldn't be focusing on what to think. You brought up the documentary 13th. Yeah, I just watched that last week. Based on the 13th Amendment, anti-slavery amendment. Yeah. And I remember watching that. And you said that you had wa- you watched that and it made you think that if some of the politicians, you, you mentioned something about some of the politicians. What was it that you? Well, when Bill Clinton in 1994 passed the crime bill, Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act. And then a few years later, I think when he was done with his presidency, he apologized because he didn't know that it would increase the incarceration of people of color. And he felt somewhat responsible for that. When I watched that documentary, a lot of things, I learned a lot of things that I simply did not know. Right. But documentaries are also designed to convince you of something. And so then it's if you really want to know, then you would have to see how are smart people analyzing this movie and what are they saying about the documentary that is legitimately challenging some of its conclusions, then you really know about the topic. I think it's important to do that. I think that's why what we do and what you have studied for so long, being curious and then applying that curiosity. That's most people watch a documentary and they get influenced by that and they'll just run with it. But to stop and think, okay, where's this coming from? Is there another opinion? Is there another source? Is this the original source? All of those things that we teach when we do our workshops, we really, I feel, again, that that's an important thing that we need to apply. Understanding original source source is huge. If you want an opinion on a movie, you have to see the movie. If you read what other people say about the movie, you can learn a lot, but that's not the original source. I actually think that the most common trap is when something makes tremendous sense, when it all makes sense to you, that's probably when you need to elevate curiosity. So if you really wish you knew more about something, it shouldn't be because it fits into this comfortable narrative that makes sense to you. When that incident with the kid in front of the Washington Monument, or maybe it was oh, in front of the right. um, the Lincoln Memorial, I can't remember which one it was, the kid in the MAGA hat and the Native American. I remember when people were posting that and their response to that. And my first thought was, how did they get there? Mm-hmm. They didn't just spontaneously land face to face. Who was taking that picture? And who was holding the camera? Right. Who was holding the camera? So did the... And people say, oh, it doesn't matter. Well, if you really wish you knew more about that particular thing or what was happening then, that's a legitimate question. If you really wish to know more about how your narrative can be supported, how anyone in a MAGA hat is necessarily a bad person and anyone that is of native or of color is necessarily a good person. If you want to know more about that narrative, then you're really not wishing you knew more about it. You're wishing you knew more about ways that you could convince other come people to, co- to come to your side right. or confirm your already, or you're wishing you could bolster your confirmation bias. Yeah. So believing evidence that supports what you want to believe and dismissing evidence to the to the contrary. Well, it's like what's happening with abortion rights. Things are changing and I want to know more about it. But then you asked me, do you want to know more about it because you want 
to bolster your side or your opinion on that? Or do you really want to know everything about it and understand other opinions and maybe the reason why certain things are happening the way they're happening? And I had to think, do I? But I actually do. I am vehemently, as you are pro-choice, obviously, mm-hmm. we know this about each other. But when I was in Washington, D.C., having a conversation with a very good friend of mine who's an attorney, he was taking me through the legal precedents of Roe v. Wade and understanding all these kinds of nuances that were fascinating to me and why this is unique legislation. I found it really interesting. It didn't convince me to change my opinion, but I would have liked it to have. I mean, it would have been incredible if I learned something that was so fundamentally contrary to what I believe that I actually changed my mind. I mean, that would be amazing. That would be amazing. I mean, it would take a lot of, I'd be proud of myself because I don't think it would be easy. No. It's not easy. It's not easy. It's not easy at all. One of the things that I like to do Mm -hmm. is, this is kind of a fun little exercise. When I realize that I want to know something about what's happening right now, or I wish I knew more. I pick a continent. So I say, okay, Africa, Europe, Asia, North America, South America, Oceania, or Antarctica. So I pick one of the continents, and then I find something happening on that continent right now to know a little bit more about. I think that's so smart because we get so overwhelmed with so many things coming at us that if you just narrow it down and focus on one thing, then you can actually learn something. It's just fun. And I and then how much do I need to know before I know? Mm-hmm. I think about Richard Feynman and he t- discusses knowing and knowing. And I might botch this a little bit, but the book, Surely You're Joking, Mr. Feynman. Or- Surely you're joking, <laughs> Mr. Feynman. And it might be, Surely you must be joking, Mr. Feynman. I don't know, but every time I see that book, that's what I start doing. Surely you're joking, (laughs) Mr. Feynman. (laughs) I love that book. I'll put I'll put links to all of this as usual in the show notes. But I remember him discussing his father was explaining the difference between knowing and knowing and it was ha- it had to do with birds. So if you think you know a lot about birds because you could go out and identify, I don't know much about birds, but I'll just say this, like a robin redbreast. A boobalink. A boobalink. A boobalink. Or, your... or is that a bobolink? Remember, what was that you were doing? I don't know. Something in high school with yeah, a bobolink. Yeah. Okay, you have bobolink or boobalink. Kind of... I like boobalink better. Boobalink. Anyway, but, go ahead. But going out... <laughs> <laughs> but we digress. <laughs> but going out to in the woods to do bird watching, which I could kind of see like if you were finding rare birds and you could say, oh, there's one and I spot one. I mean, maybe I'm getting old, but the appeal <laughs> the appeal of that is not bad, especially sunny <laughs> with a little flask of something, something. I could totally get down with that. Okay. But anyway, the idea of identifying the names of birds is not knowing, knowing birds. It is the difference between knowing the name of something and actually knowing something. And knowing birds would be understanding their bird song, their bone physiology, the, the composition of the different feathers, the purpose for the different feathers, all of those kinds of things. And I think that most of what I know, guilty as charged, is more along the lines of naming things. So mm. I wanted to know I, I was curious about what it means to know about climate change. And so I started looking at these hydrocarbons and how much do I need to know about the science of climate change? And I'm digging around, and this was like a year ago, and there was this study from this group of Harvard scientists, 
And I think the company was like carbon engineering. And they announced that they had found a method to cheaply and directly pull carbon dioxide pollution out of the atmosphere. And Mm. I thought, well, wait a minute. So I looked into it and there was a lot of political issues, obviously a lot of scientific issues. But that was a year ago. And then I looked to see what else had happened. And it's like, okay, but what if the solution to climate change is already out there, but just stuck in the political hoo-ha? Yeah. And or what if there was absolutely nothing that we could reasonably do to affect climate change and what we should be working on is mitigation? Talking about what you wish you knew when we were talking about climate change and you said, what if we stopped focusing on what we can do now and start focusing on what do we do when it happens? Well, when it happens? Yes. That's that's yesterday. Well, when it when it hits the fan. I guess, yeah, it's all happening now, isn't it? It's insidious. Yeah. So at first you see migration issues mm-hmm. that look like what we're seeing on our southern border. And we don't think about it. It's relationship to climate change because we see it as gang violence or we see it as drugs or we see it as something else. But when we look closer and closer, we can see that resource grabs often have an element of climate change at its core. Lack of resources. Lack of resources. Resource grab, right? Right. And I'm not 100% sure that all of the issues that we are facing right now with regard to climate change today show up as obvious climate change issues. So yeah. we we adapt. It's insidious. It's slow. And not to make this about climate change, but I do think that this particular thing, this topic of what do we wish we should know about, we could know about, there are things that are beyond our human capacity to really deal with. Even if you're a scientist dealing on a molecular level on these issues, it doesn't make you an expert in the political arena. I went around this week and asked people what they wish they knew more about. Oh, what did people say? Mostly. Did you ask them what is happening right now? or did you So ask I them- made the mistake of just asking what they wish they knew. Most people talked about wanting to know the meaning of life, what happens after we're gone. Should we be nihilists, philosophy, things like that? Like Albert Einstein, I want to know God's thoughts. The rest are details. That's, I think, what most people that I asked were saying. Ginger said she wanted to know what was happening at the bottom of the ocean. But Mm, that's, I kind of wish I I like that. I like that. I wish I knew more about what was happening at the bottom of the ocean. I thought about what I want to know more about the brain. Oh, I I feel like that's the final frontier. We still just do not know that much about the brain. It's astonishing how little we know versus how much we think we know. And I think that goes to medicine in general. Yeah, it is. We think we have come so far and you read studies of breast cancer from like the 1990s and it's so antiquated. I don't know. Did you read Emperor of All Maladies? It's kind of the biography of cancer. Fascinating book. You'd love that. And then the other one that I'm in the middle of right now, which is I Contain Multitudes. And that is essentially the proof of my religious philosophy that we are all bacteria's bitches. (laughs) I love that. So what did people say? What else? did? What was was, the most interesting was the bottom of the ocean? I think so. Yeah. For the most part, people people just wanted to know what happens after you die or why are we here on this planet? MIT Press, my list today. Courtesy of MIT Press. Thank you. 10 topics every 21st century citizen should, so not wish, but should know about. Okay, I'm I'm interested. Let's okay, go. let's hear what you have to say about these. Number one, the Internet of Things. 
people are no longer the only ones using computers, phones, tablets, and devices to connect online. Increasingly, our cars, thermostats, refrigerators, and a host of other objects form networked physical world. All right. I I want one of those refrigerators. Okay. No, you don't. (laughs) The information that you trade by allowing the company that provides that technology into your house needs is it worth it? So Stephen is a major early adopter of IoT, Internet of Things. Before anyone I even knew, we had Wi-Fi. I remember he had the sticker on his car because he was the general manager of the Wi-Fi division at Intel, and he had this. We had the sticker on his car that said "Got Wi-Fi." And oh, I, said, I remember and I Wi-Fi. Said, I said, "What's Wi-Fi?" Wi-Fi. <laughs> so we, Stephen, is an early adopter, and when we were doing, when we were remodeling the house, he wanted that thermostat. Oh. The th- oh, that was nothing. The Nest thermostat, the wink to put on the lights and stuff when you're on vacation, the music, the music stuff, the ring, this, the video cameras, that. And whatever I- happened to clap on, clap off. <laughs> that whatever is, happened to that? That's not connected to the Internet. Oh, and, man. The, and the thing is, these things. Yeah, sure. These things go down and that can be frustrating. And you think that that's a big deal. But the bigger deal is what data is being collected. So when you go to sell your house and you have to disclose whether you've had a leaky basement or whether you've had pipes that leak or whether you know that there is any foundational issues, anything that you might know about. But now you have access to all this data about your house that just by tracking it, now you have to disclose it. So number two is technological singularity. It's a future point in time at which technological growth becomes uncontrollable and irreversible, resulting in unfathomable changes to the to human civilization. All right. I think about singularity. Most people think about AI and singularity, essentially right. when the AI surpasses us intellectually. And that's this moment where not only that, they can then take over the world. So what is this moment? I'm not sure that it's going to be as obvious as we think. Because when you think about Go, the whole thing with AI playing and winning the uh, winning in that game against the world's greatest Go player, and Go is supposedly the most complicated game in the history of the world, and this AI just crushed the world's greatest Go player, I don't think we're that far from singularity. Maybe we think of it... Could we possibly be there now? Already? I don't. I don't know. But people talk about their singularity university. There's all these people mm. that are warning. I think Elon Musk warning of singularity, and then there's these AI revolutionaries forging ahead, saying the technological advances is worth any downside. That's an interesting. I think we should absolutely know more about singularity. Yeah. What's next? Self tracking. Technologies aim to monitor the data we produce in our daily lives what and how much we eat, how fast and how long we run. How many steps we, 10,000 steps. Do you have a Fitbit? No, but I had one of the early, early versions of the Jawbone self-tracker. It was before I really thought a lot about what that means. I didn't weigh what I'm gaining against the data I'm giving out. I just wasn't on my mind. And I How long ago was that? Mm. It was early days. So I'm going to I want to make up a date of like 2014, something like that, maybe earlier. And I put it on. It was not that cute. So if I'm going <laughs> to wear something 
a bracelet. I mean, it needs to be kind of cute. So it didn't match with my outfit. So I put it on and I would do, and it would say, oh, you did 10,000. I can't even remember. You hooked it up to your iPhone. So clearly someone else was getting that data. But then there were, and you're supposed to sleep with it. And it gave you ideas of sleep patterns. I never really thought about all. And then one day I realized that I had left it on the counter and I didn't wear it. And I thought, wow, however old I was back then, they are tracking data because you put your age and your weight. They're tracking data. Now that company ended up being a huge, huge, I mean, it was just this huge valuation and then it just imploded mm. because I don't think they had any really specific pr- specific proprietary technology that wasn't knockoffable by the Chinese knockoffs, but that data went somewhere. And my thought is that data is such BS data because I didn't wear it all the time, but who would be there to question the data? Like someone in 2014 that was born in 2010, so they're four years old, and now they're going to Stanford however many years later, and they're using data from 2014, but they don't know how completely useless that data is. It's just quantity, quantity, quantity. And I don't know about you, but do you read all of your, what is that, uh, when you when you log on to an app or you get a device, tracking device or whatever, do you read the terms and privacy and, you know, you just, no. or you just scroll down and hit accept? Most of the time I scroll down. You probably read them all. I don't read them all and I should. I mean, I, I don't read them all and I should, but you asked me the other day, oh, did you see my Snapchat that I sent you? And I said, <laughs> no, because last time I went to Snapchat, it said I had to update the terms, the privacy terms and serv- terms of agreement. And I thought I'm going to read because Snapchat's not like the most... I don't know. I, I guess they're all the same in, in, in that they need to collect as much data as possible. But when I read that, I thought to myself, using these little Snapchat filters here and there is not worth giving this privacy away. So I just didn't update it. So I don't have Snapchat now. I mean, I, ha- I don't have it updated. It doesn't provide enough. The trade-off isn't great enough. Whereas Facebook, I get a lot of value out of it. Twitter, I get value out of Google. Yeah. Snapchat, it's just silly. I could easily... Yeah, you only sent me silly filters. That's all you ever did. Yeah. But they did make me laugh. (laughs) Yeah, those are good. Number four, (laughs) memes in digital culture. Oi, I'm telling you the memes. Simultaneously entertaining and serious, memes reveal to us key aspects of contemporary society, digital culture, and the use of the internet. All right. I am so tired of Dane. Ugh. Mom, look. Oh, look at this. Oh, check this out. Showing me on his phone images with little sayings. 90, well, maybe 90% are are stupid. And he says, you just don't get them. And I think we're old. I think we don't. But here's the deal. It's not that we're old. It's just that those memes are geared toward a certain knowledge. I mean, if we had fun. Listen, some of them I understand why they're funny. So some of them I clearly do. Mm-hmm. But they're just not funny. Others I don't understand. Like I didn't watch Guardian of the Galaxies, so I don't know all those characters. I know that that those various characters might be something. If I watched that movie, I would know. But I don't care about that movie. Regardless, where Steven knows all those characters, and he's older than me. Yeah. But I just don't. So maybe it's age, but most of them I don't find funny. And then he will show me one and say, "Now this one you're going to find hilarious." And I would say of the ones that he knows definitively that I will find hilarious. Probably still 30% of them I don't think are funny. Yeah, but 70% I do. Like there's that one where they like have the butterfly flying out of his hand and he's looking somewhere else. I don't get that. I, I, I mean, I. Who's he? This man. It's just, they show, it's just a man. And now they've switched it off or like SpongeBob is the man. And 
I get what they're trying to say, but I just don't understand why that's so popular. Well, why would one, why would an MIT list suggest we know more about memes? Maybe, okay, I'm going to commit the next 30 days Mm. to understanding what I'm missing when it comes to meme culture. Like if Dane shows me a meme, rather than just roll my eyes and say, get it out of my face, you're supposed to be working, I'm supposed to be working we're editing these podcasts. Leave me alone. <laughs> I'm going to take the time to understand what I'm missing. Because when they say it could be humorous or, or it could be serious and it's a reflection of our culture, makes me think, oh, maybe I should be paying a little bit more t- attention. All right. Fair enough. Number five, open access. Creatures of all kinds, authors, musicians, academics, artists, they make their work freely available, prioritizing the potential for greater impact over the presumed loss of profit. Open access is differential. It takes different forms for different creators and can bring different concerns about the future of copyright, intellectual property, and payment for creative works. I think this is a big thing. So any creator where you're trying to say, I'm going to give it away for free, I'm going to give it away for free with the hope that there'll be some payoff, or I'm going to give it away for free, you're probably not even thinking about free. You're saying, I'm going to share it so that people can enjoy my creativity, enjoy my work, and maybe that will fuel, maybe they'll contribute something and the and the and there'll be a greater good through contributing open source material. A friend of mine started a company called Consano and they do kind of crowdsourcing or sharing medical studies specifically on rare childhood cancers or what they call orphan diseases. And they have a funding, but they also share information. And I think that's where academia is different than public companies because academia is much more of a sharing culture where they feed off of each other. But once something is having to be monetized, it's much more keep it, keep it proprietary, keep it within so we can make money off it. How do you think I, about it as an artist? Well, ugh. well, I think there are two different reasons why we give it away for free. I think what you said about sharing and wanting to get that message out, but also it's a marketing tool. If I can share some of it, then maybe I'll garner some interest in what I'm doing and then they'll pay for what I really have to offer. Or maybe if more and more people like what I'm sharing, I can be an influencer and companies will pay for me to share their products True, and that too. But as a singer, we would give away, we'd give away, we'd give away, we'd sing for free, we'd do this charity. And then after a while, I decided, no, I'm not going to do this for free. A plumber doesn't plum <laughs> for free. They went to school. They studied it. They were uh, they did an internship. I did the same thing with my music studies. So why should I give it away for free? Because if you hire a plumber and they give half of the plumbing job for free, I think it would make the fact that you want to pay for the rest of it a little more salient. Salient <laughs> is the water True. and the sewage is flowing through your house because they did half the plumbing for free. Okay, I have a solution then for that. I'm just going to sing, say, do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti. I'm just going to leave you like that. And you have to pay for the final dough. (laughs) (laughs) Don't. No, no, no. Well, I think this is really interesting when you think about speeches. And as a speaker, so many times people say, come and speak at this event for free. There will be all of these people that own companies and businesses that will want to hire you to do paid speaking, paid workshops. 
And that's a definite consideration. I also think that all of these TED Talks where you're getting really valuable, not all TED Talks, but a lot of TED, especially some of the random TEDx talks where it's kind of like, okay. But a lot of the content is really valuable content that in the olden days you would have paid to hear or you wouldn't have had access. I think it also devalues some of the content. Crowdsourcing is the next one. How can we tackle the biggest questions facing our society today? Crowdsourcing yields the collective intellect of online communities towards solving a particular problem as set out by a corporation, a government, or a volunteer organization. But is it reliable? Is it equitable? Well, I guess that's more what Consano is doing in terms of crowdsourcing. I think it's more crowdsourcing than open source. Maybe yeah. I was conflating the two because they are crowdsourcing scientific research. Now, open source is probably more about what, like, for example, AI. There's, there's a lot of code that people can go to open source and get open source material to borrow code for AI or borrow code for various things, that might be more open source, whereas crowdsourcing is raising funds, gathering information. But is it reliable? Mm. Is it equitable? Mm. I don't know equitable. I have to think about equitable. But I think it's a good point. Is it reliable? Does the fact that more people are contributing information mean that it's all more reliable information? Because you could get people who don't know shit from Shanola that are contributing to the crowdsourcing. We're not swearing. No. Oh, okay. Remember, I didn't know shit from sharing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. There's like with journalism, you're oh. getting all of this information, all of these opinions. Well, you think about Twitter and the Arab Spring, and that's mm. really where the information, that's when Twitter kind of really showed its colors in terms of being a news source or a journalism source, a source of journalism, potentially, although not journalism, where we learn things about Arab Spring from people tweeting that we probably would never have access to. Some journalists couldn't even get there. Yeah. So is Twitter, Twitter's kind of a crowdsource, but again, is it equitable? Is nah. it reliable? All right, that's interesting. I think we should definitely consider more. I'd like to learn more about crowdsourcing. Me too. Okay. M number seven is MOOCs. What are MOOCs? Massive Open Online Courses, just like your uh, LinkedIn Learning. Ah, I think this is going to change, fundamentally change, should fundamentally change our whole education system. Agreed. From kindergarten to college. It used to be that if you wanted to learn coding or if you wanted to learn history or any topic, you it was not equitable. You had to have the resources and and the access to go to a university or access a lecture or even have the content for a specific class. I mean, it was so dependent. If your school was in an impoverished area, you wouldn't get access to any of these kinds of highly technical opportunities. And now you, you can. And now you can. Now, some of them are free. Some of them are not free. But all of them are way cheaper than any university. I mean, Barclay right now is taking a class through Harvard on data science. And it's astonishing what he can learn, whereas before he would have had to apply, yeah. get into this program, move to move to Cambridge. I mean, it's 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 astonishing it, the access. I love it. I do. You, what do you take any online courses? Not me. Ginger's preparing for her SATs. So the summer she's going to be doing online courses of math. Some are free. Mm. Some cost, but you don't have to do like the Kaplan 
It used to be that only the rich people could take Stanley Kaplan or is it Princeton Review? What are the two that are the big SAT prep? Yeah. And you don't have to do that anymore. Mm. The next one is metadata. Metadata is more than an innocuous description or data about data. It creates new relationships between Mm. items, people, and patterns in a network. Metadata spurs suspicions about the privacy clauses and concessions to tracking written into terms of service agreements that we all too readily accept. So we were talking about that earlier. Would you have a chip implanted if that gave you all kinds of data about your medical situation that could make it easier to stay healthy? And also access to better health care, like better insurance and discounts on things like that. I probably would and then regret it later. I think that's what we're all doing. I think we're like, Woo-hoo, let's do this. Let's do that. Let's sign up for this. Let's sign up for that. And then we're like, wait a minute. What did I just give away? And Well, how- I think also people think that it's just going to happen anyway. So screw it. Or they think... I have nothing to hide. Why do I care? I have nothing to hide. My That's what you think. Well, I think that if I did think that, and I have thought that on occasion, I'm probably being naive in that I don't know what I don't know. Right. And I probably should be more considerate. I should, I should know more about what's happening right now with my data. Yes. Why? It's just would stress you out. Well, I don't think that knowing about things just because you can't do anything, not, I don't think that not knowing about things or agreeing to ignore things just because you can't do anything about is a good reason. But we're all, you don't need to worry. It's no, just but knowledge on, for I mean, knowledge's sake. Knowledge how for- much knowledge? I mean, th- there's like eight things here, nine things here. Then there's the things that we talked about earlier. I'm just trying to get through the day. All right. What's the next thing? The next thing is the best because we know a lot about this. What? Auctions. Wait, what? That is an important thing that MIT says that you should know more about. Well, considering we come from a long line of auctioneers. Now, we know a lot about auctions, but maybe if MIT is saying we should know more about auctions, maybe we should know more about auctions. I will tell you this. Are they talking about with regard to eBay and the behaviors and how they use the behavior of the auction? It's the economic model and the principles of the auction that ungird many of our uses, our contemporary uses. I think that, too. I have used for years. I have used the auction scenarios that we grew grew up with, pairing that with the latest in behavioral economics. And it is fascinating how many things that we grew up knowing now have a name. I remember time and time again that when I was working for dad as a kid in the greasy warehouses, (laughs) and then I was in grad school and I would learn something about maybe it was the endowment effect, the Mm -hmm. fact that we value things we own more than we would ever value it if we had to buy it from someone else when we didn't own it. I mean, that kind of thing or loss aversion. I remember thinking, wait a minute, I learned that in the context of an auction, and now this is proven in the dusty halls of academia. And, you know, you think about an auction, and an auctioneer, you're bidding on an item. The minute you bid, it's you're thinking it's yours. There's a little moment 
of ownership. Exactly. You invest in it. Yes. So. And so what the auctioneer says to heighten that sense of ownership can make all the difference. So you're bidding and you're bidding $10,000 on a trip to Africa, a safari, and now someone else is bidding against you. And Don't the, take my African trip. Now, this is your trip, the auctioneer could say, and for $1,000, you're going to let this guy take it from you. Hell no. And you don't think about the fact that, no, you haven't already paid the $10,000. Now it's $11,000. But mm-hmm. you just, for $1,000, you're going to let this person take away your trip of a lifetime. Those kinds of statements can pull tens of thousands of dollars out of your wallet. It's like how you used to guard your silent auction bids, standing there, <laughs> not letting anybody else outbid you. I don't know if that has anything to do with anything, but I just, you know, need to just say that. Well, you mean physically, like if I bid on some cool piece of jewelry and it would on- stand there and give everyone the evil eye if they even thought about outbidding you on that piece of paper. Sometimes I just block them or said, hey, girl, <laughs> Jay, I'll buy you a cocktail. You know, even though I- the cocktails were free. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's a very legit list from MIT. I will say that it is very difficult to, first of all, even figure out what's happening right now, let alone to identify what we wish we knew more about. But the exercise of picking something to know a little bit more about should be enough to fuel our brains. And it makes it a little more palatable, too. It does. Just yeah. pick something. And that's why I like to pick a continent. I like that. Or I pick a topic, or you steal from one of these MIT things. And you might not find out everything there is to know about singularity, but to be able to understand it, to be able to see it working in the wild. I ask you, what's happening right now that you wish you knew more about? You didn't answer it, did you? I did, sort of. I think I'd like to learn more about the specifics of our laws because Mm. of the things that are happening right now. When you're talking about that, are you talking about the Constitution maybe? Yeah, I think so. With abortion issues coming up, with everything that's happening at our executive level, our judicial level. Like, yeah, I just I need to know a little more specifically about the rules and the laws. All right. So that's fantastic because my friend Kim Whaley's book is coming out about understanding the Constitution and why. I'll put that in the show notes. Exciting. And I ask everyone else the curiosity bite, what's happening right now that you wish you knew more about? Before we close, I do have a very interesting sort of fact. Ooh, I didn't know we were going to get one this time. We're going to get a sort of fact simply because when there are sort of facts that relate to the curiosity by... It's amazing how often that works. It's amazing (laughs) how the sort of facts line up. But sometimes the curiosity bites are informed by sort of facts, sort of facts that I heard in the sort of intellectual interwebs. (laughs) (laughs) Sort of intellectual. Or from the sort of famous P.U., prestigious university. My favorite university. And this is LPU. Oh, LPU. Yeah. Never never uh, had a study from there. Where's L? That's because it's less prestigious <laughs> university. <laughs> <laughs> less prestigious university says that 98% of the world's population should know more about toenail fungus. I'm going to change it. I like that. <laughs> no. Oh. 98% of the world's human population should know more about cuticles. <laughs> <laughs> That's better. <laughs> Thanks for listening. And I really hope you enjoyed the episode. 
Before you take off, I have a few more things to let you know about. One, you can find show notes for every episode of ACLR and links to all resources mentioned at applycuriositylab.com forward slash blog. It's there that we'll wait to read your answers to each week's Curiosity Bite. Two, in order to avoid missing Curiosity Bitten conversations, subscribe to Applied Curiosity Lab Radio on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and all the other spots that podcasts hang out and wait to be discovered. Toss up a review, especially if you have nice things to say. Finally, for all things Applied Curiosity, including information on workshops and your free membership to the Tribe of the Curious, go to ApplyCuriosityLab.com. In the meantime, elevate curiosity.